Well, good evening, everyone. It's great to be here today. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Robert, and I'm a regular attender here. And uh, I'm going to bring us the word tonight. Uh, but before we begin, it would be great if you have that passage open in front of you, or even a Bible as well, if you have, because this, this comes in a context of Revelation, which has a whole bunch of other things which I'll be referring to and talking about tonight. But if you do have a Bible in front of you, that would be great. But if you don't, you'll probably get by with the piece of paper. So let's um, pray. Father, we thank you for your word, uh, that it speaks to us. Help us to so hear your word, that we may be transformed to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, this sounds pretty echoey. Is that sounding okay? Is that, it's fine? Okay. It's just, maybe it's just, the, it's just, just me. Now, the, emperor, the Roman emperor Domitian hated Christians. He hated that they served an alternative leader. They hated, and he hated that they, they defied the Roman gods. He, along with many faithful Romans, believed that the reason that the crops failed, that there was disease, bad weather, famine, and suffering, was because of the Christians. They were turning the populace against the Roman gods, and the gods were angry. He thought the Christians were the root cause of all the problems of the world. And once you've identified the cancer, you need to cut it out. And Domitian was intent on applying chemotherapy of a Roman kind to these cancerous, impious Christians. Domitian exiled one of these believers, John, to Patmos to assuage the gods and to seek blessing and prosperity for the people. And death was, not, was considered not enough punishment for these venomous dogs. Christians were whipped, disemboweled, torn apart and stoned. Plates of hot iron were laid on them and they were strangled eaten by wild animals, hung, tossed on the horns of bulls. And after they were dead, their bodies were piled in heaps and left to rot without burial. A law was made. No Christian once brought before the tribunal should be exempted from punishment without renouncing his religion. Now, if you were a Christian believer living at this time, and this was going on, how would you feel? The opposition to the Christian message would raise a number of very big questions for you. Because if Jesus was the victorious Lamb of God, why do his people experience suffering, pain, and persecution? How do we trust God when the, the forces of, God, of, of evil seem to be triumphant? Is there any good news here? Well, it's to this context that the book of Revelation is written. And John writes his remarkable book addressing these big questions and more. And some of these issues and questions are becoming more relevant for us here today in Australia, in Melbourne today. Whilst we don't see too many Christians being strangled, uh, Christianity no longer holds the public respect or preeminence that it once did. Indeed, there's a rising hostility towards Christians and Christianity in our culture. In fact, controversial media commentator Andrew Bolt wrote last year in the Herald Sun, he said, Christians, prepare for persecution. Open your eyes and choose stronger leaders for the dark days. I am not a Christian, but I am amazed that your bishops and ministers are not warning you of what is already breaking over your heads. Now, Bolt goes and outlines a number of situations where it's no longer acceptable in our culture today to pre promote the Christian message or to have Christian values in our world. Christendom, the idea that Christianity is effectively a Christian country, 
has ended here in Australia. Our culture has moved away from Christianity so that now Christians are more marginalized and are beginning in some sense to become persecuted. So perhaps the messages that the book of Revelation, and particularly Revelation 10 and 11 here, are relevant for us here today in modern Melbourne. So let's turn to these chapters now. Now it's quite a a long section of the Bible, and I'm not entirely sure of what you made of it when you just heard it read uh, just then. It may seem bewildering and confusing. And I must confess, when Aaron invited me to, to preach, I was delighted. And then he said that you're preaching on Revelation 10 and 11. And I can see now why he went on holidays. Because um, <laughs> when you first read it, when I, I confess, when I first read this, uh, it just seemed confusing, unfamiliar. And I thought, what am I supposed to do for 35 minutes of your life and my life <laughs> when I'm going to be preaching this? I mean, many people find that about the book of Revelation indeed. I mean, indeed, Thomas Jefferson was puzzled by the whole book. He called it ravings of a maniac, no more worthy nor capable of explanation than the incoherence of our nightly dreams. Atheist Christopher Hitchens called it deranged fantasies, at least memorably written. Yet the John, the author of this book of Revelation, wrote to be understood. He didn't write to win poetry competitions or the most tripped-out acid trip. His writings are not the deranged ravings of a maniac. He wrote carefully and thoughtfully to be understood by Christians to encourage them in their circumstances. But he writes what's known as apocalyptic language, and we've probably already thought about that as we've gone through this series on uh, Revelation. Apocalyptic language is a kind of a code language. John writes using pictures to represent events past, present, and most significantly in the future. And his code is highly structured and draws on a lot of Old Testament images to make his points. So our job tonight is to crack the code, unweave these ravings, and to decipher John's message. So let's begin. And this, so this is Revelation 10 11 and occurs in the middle section of the book of Revelation. And John's code here describes the same set of events but from different perspectives. John isn't writing chronologically but cyclically. He's describing the same series of events from different perspectives or different cycles. So like a photographer taking photographs of the same event from different angles. So John writes about the history of the world, past, present, and future, using a series of codes in this particular section revolving around the number seven. Seven being the perfect number, the number of completeness. So from chapters 5-1 to 8-5, John outlines a mighty angel bringing a scroll with seven seals. Now, these are not aquatic seals, but seals used to seal up a written document. Uh, Seals that only the perfect lamb... Jesus the Messiah could open. So John's writings about the the seven seals was one photo, one description of the past, present, and future, the end of the world through the lens of seven seals. Then at the beginning of chapter 8, in Revelation 8-2, we're introduced to the next photograph of the end of the world, as John sees, through seven trumpets and seven angels. So chapters 8-11 to deals with these seven angels. And this section we're dealing with today is part of this cycle of the seven angels and their trumpets. And so we see this particular picture of the end of the world. Now, if that's not complicated enough, the structure gets a bit more complex because as John describes these seven angels and their trumpets, he inserts a set of brackets 
between Angel 6 and Angel 7. And this set of brackets begins at Revelation chapter 10, verse 1, the section that we're looking at today. So if you go back and look in Revelation chapters 8 and 9, you'll see a fairly straightforward progression of the description of these angels. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and we heard a few of those trumpet kind of sounding snipes. It sounds like that was, I'm not sure how, if that's entirely accurate, that trumpet sounds will be like the those um, you know, blowy things, whatever. But anyway, it might be a little bit more trumpety perhaps that the Bible uses. But anyway, so the first angel sounded his trumpet after John seeing the sixth angel in 9 verses 13 to 21. But then there's a disruption in this flow beginning here at the beginning of chapter 10, where John says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud. Now this is not the seventh angel, but this is John's brackets. And I think the point of this interlude is that angels 1 to 6 have described the past, what's happened in the past. Now he pauses here before the seventh angel to explain the present, a bit more detail about what's happening in the present, before the future, which is the seventh angel, who, when he blows his trumpet in 11.15, which heralds the end of the world. So as John does this, here at the beginning of chapter 10, as he begins his, this little, little bracketed section here, he introduces a mighty angel who appears with authority to bring news of judgment. Now, angels don't necessarily mean white people with um, tinsel and glitter and wings, etc. An angel simply means messenger or herald. And we learn that this particular mighty angel is substantially different from the six angels that have, with the trumpets who have come before. The seven angels with the seven trumpets stood before God, yet this angel is different. And John uses a whole bunch of Old Testament imagery and symbols to indicate that this angel has divine attributes. He's coming from heaven, robed in a cloud and a rainbow, as you see in verses 1 and 2 there. Uh, in, now, in the Old Testament, it's only God alone who is said to come in the clouds. And a rainbow means something quite different from how modern rainbows symbolize. Um, it actually recalls the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God in Ezekiel 1.27, where God himself is described like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. This angel is described as having the face like the sun, perhaps as God dwells in inapproachable light. And pillars of fire perhaps recalls God's presence with Israel in the wilderness in Exodus. So John's used a variety of different images here, different codes, to indicate that this angel is powerful and that he has divine attributes. He comes with the authority of God. He stands mighty over all creation, both land and sea. So this particular angel should be listened to. And what does this angel do? Well, he brings some news. And this is represented by the little scroll which lies open in his hand. Now, this scroll probably means the same thing. There was an earlier scroll in, chapter, in um, Revelation chapter 5, which represents God's plan of judgment and redemption, which is inaugurated by Christ's death and resurrection, which is effectively the heart of the Christian message, the gospel message. Jesus died for our sins and was raised to new life. This is what this scroll represents. So the divine angel brings the news at the heart of the Christian message. And when he speaks, John also tells us that seven thunders also speak. Now, thunders here is not the imagined dragons kind of thunders. Thunders here represents judgments. So this angel here is bringing news of more judgment. Consistent with the imagery of seven seals, seven angels, seven trumpets, here we now anticipate 
seven judgments or seven thunders. That's pretty intense. I'm not sure how you're feeling, but it is, we've already had lots of blasting and killing and death and judgment already in Revelation, and here th- there's going to be more to come. Seven thunders. And this mighty divine angel appears with the authority of God to bring news of this judgment. And then in verse 4 there, we see that John is about to write down what these seven thunders have to say. And this would potentially bring, begin another cycle of seven even more serious woes. But John then hears a second voice. Now this voice isn't from the angel, but comes directly from heaven and says, Seal up the thunders. Don't write it down. Now this is an intriguing development. John is given a revelation of these seven thunders, these judgments. But he's also told not to share them. They're not revealed here. Now, why is this? Why are we not told what these seven thunders are? Well, we're not really sure. Perhaps we've already heard enough about how those opposed to God will be judged and any further revelation of judgment will be unnecessary or repetitive. Or perhaps it might be that the news that the thunders bring is so awful and terrifying and vivid that words couldn't describe it. But we're just not told why John shouldn't write them down, but just that he shouldn't. But it also reveals that there's more to God, the invisible plans of God's and the future than we, than we know. There are things about the future that we are kept from knowing and that we'll never know, which does keep us humble. So what happens instead? Well, the great angel makes an oath to God, to the one who created the heavens and the earth and all that in it. He makes an oath that there will be no more delay. The end will happen. The present age will finish and will be completed. And so might, this, this angel then anticipates the seventh angel of the seven angels with the seven trumpets, who's about to sound his trumpet and to wrap everything up to begin at the end of the world. Remember, this explains the reason for the interlude between the sixth and the seventh angels. This angel is explaining what's happening at the moment, in the present, before the final angel comes to herald the end of the world. And what then happens before the end? Well, look there in verse 7. The mystery of God will be accomplished. Now, mystery is not mysterious, as in like the Dr. Blake mysteries, um, but a mystery is something that was hidden that is now revealed. Like, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1, where the mystery of God that, will, that all will come together under Christ has been made known. So this is the mystery that will be accomplished at the end, that through Jesus' death and resurrection, all things will be together under Christ. So John isn't dwelling on judgment here. He's focusing on the end and that the great plan of God will be accomplished. And he also gives some inklings that there will be good news for those who believe and preach the good news, even if they are punished or persecuted for it. Now, this would be reassuring, wouldn't it, for those who are experiencing suffering for the gospel, to know that your present suffering will end. The seventh angel and the seventh trumpet is about to sound. The end will come and wrap up and complete the plan of God. But before the seventh angel comes, before the end of the world, the gospel is continued to be preached. And then the voice from heaven speaks again. See there in verse 8. He says, Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the mighty angel. And in verse 9, he's told to eat it. Now again, this might seem... A little bit strange. Uh, Well-known Christian speaker and author John Dixon has vowed to eat a page of his Bible 
if someone can find a full professor of ancient history who denies the existence of Jesus. So, so, so far he hasn't found anyone to, to do that, so he hasn't had to eat any of his Bible. Um, but this voice from heaven is speaking in a slightly different way. Uh, the, he commands John, the author of Revelation, to eat this scroll. Now remember, as we're cracking this code of Revelation, what does the scroll represent? What, what, do, we, what do we find out before? What is it, does anyone... This is, this is not necessarily a rhetorical question, but... <laughs> doesn't mean judgment. What does the scroll represent? What we to say about the scroll represented? It mentioned partly judgment, but it's, it's something... The gospel, exactly right. It's a Christian message. It symbolizes God's plan of judgment and redemption. So judgment is part of it, but it's connected to Jesus' death and resurrection, the heart of the Christian message. So what does that then mean that John is told to eat this scroll, eat this Christian message? If John Dixon ate a page from his Bible, it'll probably taste a lot like paper and probably wouldn't be particularly enjoyable. And in fact, it might not be the best for him because paper isn't digested easily uh, in our systems. I found that out this morning. Um, sorry, not, not from experience, just, just to let you know. I wasn't, I wasn't trialling this out. Uh, I read it on Google. So... Uh, but this scroll is very, very different. See there in verse 9. He says, He will take it and it will t- turn his stomach sour, but in his mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I really like sweet and sour Chinese dishes. But John isn't opening a Chinese restaurant and he's not offering sweet and sour scroll. So what does this mean? Well, A similar scroll-eating event occurs in Ezekiel chapter 3. The prophet Ezekiel is also told to eat a a scroll. And when he ate it, it tasted sweet. Sweet because the message was so good to hear. It was wonderful good news. News of relationship with God, of life and of hope. Yet Ezekiel was bitter because of the rebellion and stubbornness of the people. Though the scroll contained good news, the people of Israel didn't want the message And it saddened him and left him feeling bitter. And I think a similar thing is happening here. The scroll represents the gospel message, the good news of salvation. So John eating this message, it means he's becoming kind of one with the message, internalizing the message. It's not not like John Dixon eating a Bible to prove a point, but it's to kind of merge yourself, become with the message, become like the gospel. And it's sweet because it contains God's words, God's life-giving words, words of meaning, of purpose, of hope, Forgiveness, freedom. Just as the old John Newton hymn says, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes all sorrow, heals all wounds, and drives away all fear. However, these same words which bring peace and comfort to the believer are rejected by many in the world. The same words, the same message is sweet to John the herald, but they are bitter in his stomach because he must speak this message to all sorts of different people who will reject it. As it says, there are many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. This puts a bit of a sour taste in the belly, doesn't it? Sharing good news that people will reject and will not like. Now, the other day I was watching the men's 200-meter final in the Commonwealth Games the other night. It was a tremendous race. Uh, and England's Zamal Hughes won by a fraction of a second ahead of the fast-finishing Jareem Richards from Trinidad and Tobago. It was a tremendous race. I'm not sure if anyone saw it, but the result flashed up that the Englishman Hughes was a winner by only a tiny fraction of a second. So he was understandably ecstatic and, uh, and had, had a victory lap carrying the English flag. 
But there was an appeal, and the English runner was disqualified for impeding the runner from Trinidad and Tobago, giving Richards the gold from the, to Trinidad and Tobago. Now, I saw the race official walk up to the celebrating English runner with his flag draped around him, cheering with the crowd, to tell him this bad news. Now, I'm not sure I really could have done that. <laughs> My stomach would have been feeling pretty bitter knowing that I was coming bearing some bad news, that you would not win this gold medal, that you will be disqualified knowing that this result, that my words will be disputed, disappointment, and will not be received well. Well, sharing news of a disqualification is one thing, but sharing news that might mean that you'd be whipped, stoned, and threatened with death, is something else. I can understand the sour feeling in his belly. And also there'd be a bitterness to know that you're sharing a message that would be rejected. You, you know the consequences of rejection. You've seen the thunders. You've seen this judgment. Yet your dear countrymen, your dear friends and your dear family will still reject this message. And so here a voice recommissions from heaven, recommissions John to speak about this judgment, which is both so sweet and yet sour at the same time. And then we move into... Revelation chapter 11, and we see what this recommissioning means. Again, there's a lot of coded language which we need to crack from this section. John's told to measure the temple and the altar. Now, he's not referring to the physical temple of Jerusalem because the physical temple would have probably likely been destroyed by the time John was writing this book. It's symbolic. Again, it's code representing the people of God, God's true worshippers, those in relationship with him. And he's told to count the true worshippers, but exclude the outer court. And I think here he's referring to the division between believers and non-believers. The temple, those on the inside are the believers, and those on the court are non-believers represented by Gentiles. The believers live among the non-believers, and it represents the church dwelling within the world. And it represents the vulnerability of the church to the, to the world in which they live. The people of God being besieged while the non-Christian world rules around them. See there in verse 2, that these uh, that the rule of the non-believers as they trample this holy city, and that they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And what's the significance of 42 months? Why such a precise number? Well, is it the meaning of life, the universe and everything? Is that the reason? Sorry, come on, I had to get that one in. Um, but how long exactly is 42 months? Mathematicians, how long is it? Three and a half years, exactly right. And this is a highly significant number in the Bible, but particularly here in the book of Revelation. 42 months, three and a half years is the length of time of tribulation and opposition prophesied by Daniel in Daniel 7:25 and 12:7. It's a time, times, and half a time. One plus two plus a half, which works out to be three and a half years. But three and a half is also exactly half of. Seven. Yes, that's right. I'm glad. We have just one mathematician in the room. Excellent. But with seven is the number of completion, the perfect number, the number of wholeness, totality. So the significance is this time of trampling will happen in less than the perfect time. Three and a half. It means that it's not complete, stopped. Like, for example, how a broken column in a tombstone symbolism, in tombstone symbolism indicates a life cut short, 
a memorial to the dead or someone who died young or in the prime of their life before reaching old age. So this means that whilst there'll be a, temp- there'll be a trampling, it'll be temporary. It won't last forever. The non-believers are not going to ultimately rule. So this is saying that there will be a time symbolically represented by 42 months where life will be tough for true believers. And at this time, at this time period, two witnesses will appear. See there in verse 3, uh, these two witnesses. Now, who exactly are these two witnesses? Well, these, they come wearing sackcloth. Uh, in, see there in verse, um, verse 3. Uh, which symbolizes preaching a bitter message of repentance and doom. And these witnesses will prophesy for the duration of this opposition to God's people. They'll prophesy for 1,260 years, which, give or take, given the symbolic language of Revelation we're talking about here, is also three and a half years. But who are they? Who are these two witnesses? They sound a lot like... Elijah and Moses. They have the power to shut up the sky and not make it rain like Elijah. And they have the power to turn waters into blood and bring plagues like Moses did. But they could also be like Zerubbabel and Joshua from Zechariah chapters 3 and 4, who stand as witnesses to the temple of God, to the world, with two olive trees and gold lampstands, like um, John mentions here in verse 4. So which one is it? Is it Joshua? Is it Zerubbabel? Is it Elijah? Is it Moses? Well, I'm not so sure it's two specific individual people. But these witnesses, again, symbolically represent the witness of God's people to the world. Believers who stand and testify when the world opposes God's plan. Throughout the time, times and half a time, the three and a half years, this incomplete time, God is never left without his witnesses in the world. And then we see there in verse 7, when they finish their prophecy, the beast attacks and kills them. And notice that the story of the life of these witnesses follows the pattern of Christ himself. They're killed in that great city, figuratively called Sodom and um, and Egypt. Now, for those who know their geography, Sodom is nowhere near Egypt. But this symbolically represents the worst of opposition to God. Sodom, known for particular perversion and persecution of God's people, and Egypt is represented oppression and enslavement of God's people. Uh, and so this is the worst of the world's opposition to the Christian messages. And these witnesses are killed, just like their Lord, in the same city. Just as what happened at the time of Domitian. Plates of hot iron were laid on them. They were strangled, eaten by wild animals, hung and tossed on the horn of bulls. After they were dead, their bodies were piled in heaps and left to rot without burial. And the world thinks it won. The Romans gloated, they cheered. Less than two years ago, it was reported that ISIS fighters crucified Christians in Iraq who were captured and crucified. One ISIS fighter said to one man, we will crucify you like your dog, Jesus Christ. He was then stabbed and tortured for five hours in front of his wife and children. Then he was nailed to a wooden plank and hanged on a cross before he was shot in the mouth in front of his terrified family. The fighters gloated. Yet God is not without his witnesses in a world opposed to him. But there is good news. 
there is good news for believers. At the end of these three and a half days, the words of Ezekiel and Zechariah will come true. Zechariah 4.6 says, Not by might nor by power, but my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And as prophesied in Ezekiel 37 in the Valley of Dry Bones, those who have been persecuted and killed will be raised up. They will stand as a testimony to the truth and the power of God. This would have been a fearful sight for those who have persecuted, criticized and afflicted the enemies, afflicted the people of God. To see the ones that, they've been sl- that they have slain to be raised up again to join God in heaven, as verse 12 says. There will be great fear and terror for those who have realized that they've made a massive mistake. And this is a picture of the final judgment. There is an ending of all endings to this superhero movie, this ancient superhero movie. Earthquakes, destruction and thousands of people being killed. The survivors give glory to God, but this is not a willing glorification. It's a reluctant one that I must give God glory because I realize he is worthy of this now. It's the end of the world and the photographer goes snap. Verse 14. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So John finishes his brackets here. The parentheses are closed. We enter the final part of this apocalypse where we get to the seventh angel. And this is now speaking of the future. The mighty angel was describing the present experience of believers, persecuted believers, and this section from 11.15 to 19 describes the lordship and reign of Christ who rewards the faithful and destroys his enemies. And we can see there in verse 15 that the heavens and the earth have become one. The kingdom of the world is now the kingdom of our Lord and Christ and he will reign forever. What has been inaugurated through the death and resurrection of Christ has now become consummated. The seventh angel heralds a new age. An age where true justice will be meted out. God now reigns. God's wrath comes on the nations. See there in verse 18. There is judgment, but he rewards those who are his faithful servants. And note that they're not just rewards for the great, but small and great for all who fear his name. The seventh angel comes triumphantly proclaiming the lordship and the reign of Christ and rewards the faithful and and announces the destruction of his enemies. So there we have it. Reflections on Revelation 10 and 11. But what on earth does this all mean for us today? This cosmic battle of good and evil and judgment and destruction perhaps seem a little foreign for us working away in our office or going to university or doing what we need to do as we drive home today. It seems so intense and so extreme. What are we to make of it all? Well, a few thoughts. Despite our present situation, there is good news. The gospel itself is good news. Remember the experience of John in eating the scroll of the gospel sweet and sour gospel, the gospel itself, the message of forgiveness of sins and hope of life with God in heaven is a sweet and good message. Let us never forget the goodness of the gospel, how sweet indeed the name of Jesus sounds. But as we recall and remember and enjoy the sweetness of the gospel, let's not forget its bitterness. A crucial part of the good news of the gospel is that there is judgment. 
It's a bitter message to take to a world that doesn't want to be judged and who don't want to accept Christ as Lord. But but judgment is ultimately good because there will be judgment and justice for all in the end. Imagine a world without judgment. It would be chaotic, violent, a world of the survival of the fittest, the strongest and the most cunning. But in this passage, the Bible reminds us that there will indeed be a final judgment. A judgment which brings relief and hope to believers suffering for being persecuted. Hope that they will one day be vindicated. Hope that those ISIS murderers will one day be judged. Hope that the slayers of Roman Christians will be judged. Hope that those who oppose the Christian message here in modern Australia will also be judged. Hope that there will be justice in the end. And living with this in mind, I think will mark us out as distinctive because we can handle unjust suffering in this world because we know that there will be justice in the end. We can calm down and even rest when we suffer from injustice. I think this is in contrast to the modern secular world because for them there is no justice in the end, which means I must strive frantically to get as much justice as I can now because this is all there is. Now, I'm not for a second opposed for trying to get justice now in this world. We should strive for justice. But we know that perfect justice in this world is impossible. There will always be unsolved crimes. There will be mistakes, a lack of evidence. People will get off. But we live knowing that the seventh trumpet is coming. The herald of a new age of judgment, justice and peace. This also means that we know that we live in the age of the three and a half years where people will oppose, persecute and hate Christians. As Andrew Bolt says, we may be entering an age where Christians are getting persecuted in Australia. But this shouldn't surprise us, should it? As Revelation says, this will happen right up to the final judgment. So we shouldn't be mourning the end of Christendom and the loss of Christian influence in the world. I've seen some Christians who appear devastated at the loss of Christian influence in the world, removal of SRI in schools, moves to remove prayers in Parliament, loss of Christian values in our laws, the loss of connection between this world and the rule of Christ. But isn't Revelation saying that this is what we should expect? The inhabitants of the world will gloat over the suffering and the destruction of faithful Christian witnesses, but the seventh angel is coming. The seventh angel who heralds the ultimate reign of Christ, when the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord. This can motivate and encourage us to deal with persecution and oppression today, and we look as we look forward to the great climax of history when Christ will reign, where there will be justice, there will be peace. Jesus will reign for the seventh angel is coming. Let's pray. Father, we deal with big and weighty topics and ideas here tonight. As we go from here, may we be reminded by your spirit of your power, of your justice to come. The seventh angel is indeed coming to bring, uh, to bring justice to wrap up the end of the world. We can trust that despite the challenges that we and other believers around the world face being persecuted for their faith, that we can hold firm knowing that true justice will reign in the end. That rain will come with Jesus Christ. And we look forward and long for that day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.